In episode 63 of Mosin at Large, if you're in the UK and you use TuneIn Radio and you notice that it's gone weird, it's not a bug. I'll explain the situation and why it could be a threat to the rest of the world. We pay tribute to Charlie Crawford, hear more about audiobooks, talk about voting blind, and a lot more. Mosin at Large Podcast. You're very welcome to contribute to the podcast, and there are two ways to do it. You can drop me an email to Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com. You can write something in that email or you can attach an audio recording using anything that records and that you can attach to an email. You can also call the listener line. That number is in the United States. It's 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736 and record a message that could be included in the podcast. Concise contributions always help. We can't include everything because of the volume of contributions we receive. And please note that if we do use your content, we reserve the right to edit it for clarity and brevity. You can follow Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter to join the conversation with other listeners, to get sneak peeks about what's coming up on the podcast, and I regularly tweet links that I think will be of interest to Mosin at Large listeners. To keep up to date with Mosin at Large and radio-related activities I'm doing, you can subscribe to our media email list. It's announcements only, and the traffic is very light. To do that, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosin.org. The podcast version of this show contains extracts from the full version, which is heard live on Mushroom FM at mushroomfm.com and anywhere that you listen to radio stations at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on a Saturday afternoon. For the full Mosin at Large experience, I encourage you to be part of that community. And finally, before we get into the episode this week, a reminder that this podcast is long, and to help you navigate past the bits that you aren't interested in to the bits that you are, it's segmented by chapters. If you have a podcast app capable of supporting chapters, and many on iOS and Android do this, you can skip between segments of the show. Wonderful to have you here. I know there's a lot of choice, so thank you so much for checking out the show today. Before we get into what is a really busy one and hear many contributions from you and a few thoughts from me, I just want to give you a heads up that we do have a special that will be on the podcast feed relating to the Apple event. This event takes place on Tuesday, this Tuesday, the 15th of September, 10 a.m. Cupertino time. So you can work out where that is, where you are. That is the Pacific time zone in the U.S. For us, it's bright and early, 5 a.m. on a Wednesday. And there is some speculation that even though we have become used in recent years to having the iPhones unveiled at this time, we may not be getting those until a special event in October. That's potentially because... COVID-19 has delayed the production process a little. So we are getting new iPhones at some point this year. There's no question about that. Some pretty reliable sources are suggesting that the iPhone 12s are now in production. But there is some suggestion that we just might not have them unveiled on this Tuesday event. I expect that we will hear more about iOS 14, maybe just a recap, possibly one or two new features that Apple are going to tell us about and highlight and that we can expect the new suite of software from Apple, if tradition is followed, and this is not a traditional year, of course, to be released a week after that, a week after the event. We are hearing that there may be new iPads, and it's possible we're getting very close to the new 
Apple tags. It's understood they're in production as well. We've been talking about this on the show for an interminably long time as we wait for them to arrive. This is the competitor to Tile. You'll be able to wear these things or affix them to devices you don't want to lose. Put them in your luggage if you're traveling and find out where things are located through the Find My app. So we may hear about those. We're also expecting to hear about new Apple Watches and what is in the Series 6. In fact, interestingly for Apple, and I don't know whether this is a boo-boo or not, but in the metadata for the YouTube stream that Apple will be using, you can hear it through the usual channels, but also on YouTube, they included Series 6 in the metadata. So we are clearly going to hear about the Series 6 Apple Watches at this event. We will have Heidi Taylor, who has done this before so successfully, taking screenshots of all the things that get put up on the screen but are not necessarily verbalised. And if there are new hardware products, and there will be some, even if we don't get iPhones, to describe, she will describe them to you in detail. That will all be part of our post-event wrap. We will also be joined by Judy Dixon, technology expert and author and user, and also Michael Fair, who is the author of that iOS personal power edition. So we'll all get together and make that available in the podcast feed as soon as possible. We'll get together as soon as the event wraps up, do our recording, and then we'll get that podcast out to you in the podcast feed. If you would like to tell me what you are looking forward to, what you are hoping for, from this Apple event. I mean, will we get an announcement about the first Apple Silicon Macs? Because they're expected by year's end. And thankfully, this year isn't too far from ending. So maybe we will find out some more about what is happening in Macland with these Apple Silicon products. So it could be an interesting event, whether we get new iPhones or not. If you're in the United Kingdom and you try to listen to radio stations with tune-in that are outside the United Kingdom, you are going to hear this. This station is not available in your country. And you might be thinking, what on earth? In fact, you might feel so strongly about this, you could even say, what the soup is going on with this? Ironically, on the 9th of September, Mushroom FM transitioned to a brand new super duper computer the mushroom pot 2.0 and if you were listening to mushroom fm on that day we had a bit of a retirement party for the old one and we welcomed the new one and it sounds fantastic we've been tweaking the sound over the last 48 hours 72 hours or so and now we're pretty happy with how it is sounding and of course it's not unreasonable for some people to think you broke it you knit you knit now, tune-in doesn't work in the UK. Unfortunately, the two things are not related. It's like saying, oh, 5G's been turned on around the world. COVID-19 has happened. Therefore, COVID-19 is caused by 5G. Bzzz. No, there's no cause and effect here. In fact, the uh, problem with tune-in started before we touched our new computer. So what actually is the cause of this? And is it a bug? Is it going to go away? Well, I can tell you it is not a bug. Whether it's going to go away, I think, remains to be seen. So let me explain to you first why this has happened and then what you might be able to do to mitigate it if you are in the UK. I read a lot of tech news, but this issue completely got past me somehow. To get to this point, we have to go back to November 2019. 
That's when a high court case concluded in the UK with a judge ruling that TuneIn has been operating illegally in the UK by streaming unlicensed music and content. TuneIn was sued by Warner Music and Sony Music, and this dates back to 2017 when the lawsuit began, specifically concerning TuneIn providing access to international radio stations that play music not licensed in the UK. Now, in their reaction to the verdict when it came down in November of 2019, Sony Music Entertainment called the court ruling a critical move in the right direction. Today's judgment, it says, confirms what we have long known to be true, that TuneIn is unlawfully redistributing and commercialising links to unlicensed music on a widespread scale. While this decision marks an important victory against TuneIn's blatant copyright infringement in the UK, the company continues to unlawfully profit from massive global commercialisation of unlicensed copyrighted sound recordings by turning a blind eye to basic licensing requirements and hiding behind safe harbour claims to avoid paying music creators. This deprives music creators of compensation for their work and gives TuneIn an unfair competitive advantage in relation to licensed webcasters that honour their legal obligations and respect the need for artists to receive a fair return on the essential value they provide. Warner Music also welcomed the High Court's decision at the time late last year, with a spokesman saying that they hoped it would force TuneIn to now operate on a fully licensed basis and fairly pay rights holders for the music that it's using to generate revenue. When he delivered his ruling, the judge, whose name is Colin Burse, also took time to question the TuneIn Pro app, which has the recording function. He said it effectively makes a download-on-demand service having the record function in there. TuneIn's Pro app is reported to have 150,000 users in the UK alone at the start of 2019, although its record function was disabled in the UK in 2017. The IFPI is chiming in and says the decision sends a clear message that services like TuneIn that generate revenues by providing online access to recorded music must negotiate licenses and compensate right holders for the use of their music. We continue to ensure that this is the case and that revenue is returned to those that invest in and create music. Now at the time, the TuneIn CEO, whose name is Juliet Morris, put a statement out, and she said, Today in the UK, a judgment was announced involving TuneIn and Sony Music and Warner Music regarding the availability of music radio stations to TuneIn users in the UK. The UK court found in favour of TuneIn on the most important claim, confirming that music radio stations licensed in the UK can be made available through the TuneIn service to TuneIn's UK users. While we continue to evaluate the ruling and consider all options, including appeal, we believe the judgment will have very little impact on the company's revenue and ongoing growth strategies. We won on the most important element of the case, which was the right to provide UK users with access to UK-authorised radio stations. TuneIn is committed to complying with all applicable laws in the countries we serve and will continue to defend the right to operate a directory service 
providing listeners access to content freely available on the internet. Those are the statements, and that's the background. My research indicates that an appeal of that decision was permitted, but I'm not clear if TuneIn exercised their right to appeal. What we do know for sure is that earlier this week, two things happened. First, it is now not possible for people in the UK to hear any internet radio station on TuneIn that is not in the UK. And second, globally, the TuneIn Pro app has now taken the record button away, which was one of the key reasons why a lot of people bought the thing in the first place. All saved recordings have also gone. So if you were saving recordings in there that you wanted to keep that stuff, they've just been taken away arbitrarily, unilaterally. I find this court case and the aftermath both concerning and staggering. First, TuneIn is obviously by far the largest, but it's not the only directory of radio stations streaming content on the internet. I haven't read any of the transcripts that might exist or the evidentiary documents that might exist relating to proceedings, and I'd like to do that, but I don't understand on the surface of it What's the difference between somebody assembling a huge collection of Chrome bookmarks or Microsoft Edge favorites that link you to streams from around the world and what TuneIn is doing just by putting those same things in an app or on a website? The content doesn't belong to them and they never said it did. They're simply a directory making it easy for you to find the radio station you want to listen to. I'm sure, like me, if a news event has happened in a particular part of the world, it's been fun to browse, tune in and find the city in question and tune into local radio. Or you just feel like, I guess, what we used to in the old shortwave days, call scanning the bands. Just, you know, what's a radio station in Iceland actually like, for example? And how realistic is it really, given the many thousands of internet radio stations from all around the world, in TuneIn's directory, some of which stream title and artist metadata and some of which do not, to collect all that data for royalty purposes. TuneIn is the biggest fish in this pond. It's built into Amazon Echo, Google Home, Sonos and many other platforms. But there are other apps. This decision should send a chill through any British internet radio listener who wants the freedom everyone else can enjoy to listen to internet radio stations around the world. Because if they've come for TuneIn successfully, maybe they'll keep going until UK radio listeners are completely locked into a UK internet radio bubble. And before those of us in the UK get bored and switched off, note the statement that one of the record companies made. Yes, this is great, it's a step in the right direction, but TuneIn is doing this all around the world. Now that they've been emboldened by what went on in the UK, do you seriously think they'll stop there? If you're in the United States, for example, where the recording industry is very strong, what will happen if you can't listen to Mushroom FM on all your various devices because TuneIn has been spiked in the same way there? It could happen. And if Amazon or Google or any of those Sonos, or Sonos has now got their own radio feature, actually, so that's interesting. But if some of these other players switch to another provider that isn't impeded in this way, I would suspect that all that extra attention will cause these record companies to go after that provider. The internet is a global medium to suggest that every directory needs to pay a license to the greedy music industry 
is the kind of behaviour we saw in the latter part of the last century and the early part of this one. Anyone who tries to put a sticking plaster over the global internet knows that there are people who can easily get around it and rip the sticking plaster off. Anyone keen enough will be flocking to the VPN services in the UK right now. For the record, my favourite of the moment is called Surfshark, and they'll be able to circumvent this absurd limitation. Many routers now let you connect to VPNs directly, and VPN apps are available for all computer platforms, iOS, Android, Mac, PC, lots on Linux, of course. TuneIn seems to be spinning that, well, at least they're able to keep providing UK stations to a UK audience. But it makes a mockery of that global nature of the internet. To call TuneIn's recording function a download-on-demand service really is a nonsensical stretch. It's more like recording off the radio, like many of us who were old enough used to do when we were kids with cassettes. Often, tracks run together, maybe the guy's talking over the intro, the bit rate might be low, there could be a lot of compression introduced into the audio, and of course, the songs can't be split into individual fragments. You start recording, and then you stop again, and no matter how long the recording is, it's all one big file, hardly download on demand. Not everybody wants to fiddle with VPN technology, so what else can you do, at least until the internet police come for alternatives to tune in? Well, first let's take a look at the Amazon Echo. The advantage of that platform is that there are lots of skills available, and there may be more than this one, but this is one that I'm familiar with. For now, at least, my tuner radio is available in the UK, just as it is available everywhere else. And so you would enable that skill, and you would say, for example, soup drinker. Ask my tuner radio to play Mushroom FM. Playing Mushroom FM from New Zealand. And uh, Simple I, as. You know, I didn't make it happen. It, it was Soup all drinker. that mushroom. Stop. So that's a very simple way around that. I'm not as familiar with Google Home, but as yet I haven't found an alternative to tune in on that platform. If one exists, then please let me know. I'll make sure that we pass it on to our friends in the UK. There are many good radio apps for both iOS and Android. Maybe some people can suggest some good accessible Android apps for radio that are not tune-in. iOS options include Utunes, which is the directory that the Victory to Stream also uses, Broadcast and Triad. But currently, asking Siri to play Mushroom FM or Mushroom Escape still works fine, so that's nice and easy. Once you've done that, you'll find recently heard stations under the recent section in the radio tab using the Apple Music app. So that's my favourite way of listening to radio even though I can still access all the streams on tune, and that's a really good way to do it. This is a horrifying overreach, and I hope that UK users find a way to get together to protest this, because actually, we're counting on you over there, guys. If this isn't challenged, I think you'll find, like a virus, this will spread around the world and threaten the global nature of internet radio that we've all come to love. Now, reaction coming in on this, Brian Gaff in the UK writes, one has to wonder why they chose the UK to do this prosecution and also why we have not heard about this a lot more in the interim and why we were not warned. 
My guess is that Amazon have been caught as much on the hop here as everyone else. But depending on the various companies' stance now, will they pull any skill that does the same thing as TuneIn in the UK? Also, if Sony and Warner get away with this without any challenges, as it seems they have, will they be emboldened to go Europe-wide, then US, then tackle the rest if they feel it worth the effort, which could spell the end for internet broadcasting of music programming since the take-up of listeners has grown since the assistants have gained market share. Otherwise, it's a manual job of finding the station and playing it on your device, rather than just asking for it. Could ISPs start blocking streams, just in case they get sued by one of the major media corporations? However, they seem to have lost the plot, since the home taping is killing music was soon proved to actually be the opposite. The point is that music is only of value if you can demand it when you need it, and to do that, you need to subscribe to or buy a source. Radio is a shop window, not a media service. That is why tapes made up and given to friends sold media, not reduced sales, at least in everyone other than the most cheapskate of listeners. In many ways, talking to artists who self-promote and do not use the big companies, these companies almost own you and cream far too much off and can just drop you on a whim, and some smaller artists actively send their music to small internet stations deliberately. So really, I feel this smacks of big commercial interests trying to grab the whole cake before anyone has a chance to even taste it. You could end up with no mushroom outside your country, and this could also happen to many stations around the world merely to suit the big corporations who think they can make a bit more dosh while hiding behind the defense of artists' fake flag they are toting at the moment. Thanks, Brian. And I think what it also smacks of (laughs) is a judge who probably doesn't understand the internet. And sadly, we do see this uh, quite regularly, people who just are not keeping up with the digital age. Now, I have had a lot of reactions to this uh, flooding in. And to summarize quite a few of them, from the UK, it's essentially what actually can we do practically about this? I would be really surprised if there wasn't some sort of online petition started already. But if not, I know that uh, I was talking to uh, some other people who were thinking of starting one. But actually, I think that legislative advocacy is what's required here. And I don't know whether TuneIn is doing this, whether they're uh, effectively thrown in the towel. It is interesting that on their social media, they are not taking on the music industry. They're not challenging this. They're not trying to get people on their side. And I suspect the reason for that is that they're a global company. And if they annoy the music industry too much, the music industry will come into other markets. So they really are in a very difficult position. So I suspect the best course of action from an advocacy point of view is actually to contact some sort of MP who is friendly to this and get some legislative clarification. Because if you can get something in law somewhere that says a directory, an aggregator of content, it's basically like a search engine, isn't it? And if you can get that in law that says that an aggregator of content is not required to get a license for the content, then that would obviously clear it up and TuneIn would be able to operate again 
although the climate is not particularly favourable to big tech at the moment. I hardly really describe TuneIn as big tech, though. They are quite niche. Now, Munewa in the United States is emailing in and says the court case is one thing. The concerning thing about this is that stuff that people paid for is suddenly gone, as you said, unilaterally. It sets a dangerous precedent, especially since people might not even get their money back. It just shows how much more control the big industries can exercise now that everything is digital. Some part of me is saying that this was their plan all along. More coming in on the tune-in issue. Michael Bullis says, Seems like the thing you're missing in all of this is that at least in the US, when I listen to radio stations, very often TuneIn puts in their own ads rather than the ones that are on the station itself. Yeah, that's interesting, Mike, because that doesn't happen here. So I typically listen to New Zealand radio stations or Mushroom FM occasionally, US stations, but I guess I hadn't picked up on that, which does probably change things a bit. What I don't understand, he says, is what TuneIn might have to pay to satisfy the music distributors. When I owned bars and restaurants, I had to pay annually to a couple of music organisations. One was ASCAP and the other was BMI, I think. I called them the Music Mafia. It wasn't cheap, but if I wanted to rebroadcast, I had to do it. May Thompson is in Scotland and therefore affected by the tune-in changes and says, Hello, Jonathan, I am gutted about tune-in not working anymore as I used to listen to a few southern gospel radio stations. At first, I thought it was due to your computer when I couldn't get Mushroom FM. If I knew how to contact someone, I would do it. Maybe someone could start a petition. Christopher Duffley says, I'm not in the UK, but still, I'm now scared that this may spread to the rest of the world. I cannot see myself supporting TuneIn's efforts in anything anymore, especially with the record feature now disabled globally. I have recordings of these Mosin Explosion and Mosin at Large shows from Mushroom FM on my TuneIn app. Do I want those and other station recordings going away? Certainly not. David Harvey says iHeartRadio is another choice, but I'm not sure that iHeartRadio aggregates all internet radio, does it? I think that they focus on their own content much of the time. For example, I don't think Mushroom FM is in iHeartRadio, but if I'm wrong about that, well, that's good news. Gino J says, when I ran Magic 109, my station, I licensed with Live 365. I do believe there's no way for these big-time record labels to police radio stations. I think, as you said, it's like trying to tell search engines not to aggregate results due to their region. Gary G is in South Africa. He says, hi, Jonathan. I don't know of a single radio station that doesn't have a website. And obviously, every station with a website that is worth its salt will have a streaming link. So I don't understand why they're being sued for copyright issues. It just causes a whole lot of unnecessary soup. Anyone can go to any station's website and just listen. And TuneIn is just making that a lot easier. If they're worried about copyright things, why not shut down YouTube? People download shows from there all the time using all sorts of encoders. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Podcast. So this is a story about blind people voting, uh, audio tabulation machines, uh, cardboard sleeves with little holes where you mark an X, 
and how these things can all go wrong when it's a snap election. So my name is Rebecca Blavowitz, and I live in New Brunswick, Canada. And we are having, so there's some egos in our provincial legislature. And the premier called uh, a snap election in the middle of a pandemic when he had lots of all-party support, leaving all that aside. Uh, about five weeks, he set the date for September the 14th. So that left everybody about a month to get ready for this election. Uh, political candidates had until Friday, September the 4th to declare. Okay, so that's last Friday. Advanced polls open at 8 a.m. on Saturday, September the 5th. Now, word comes out that every single riding, which is sort of a geographical center where you, you vote for your provincial, ML, you know, your MLA, provincial member of provincial parliament, whatever, whatever you call it around the world. There's 49 ridings in New Brunswick. It's a fairly small province. But um, word has it that all 49 ridings at the returning office, which is kind of the hub of the riding where everything emanates from, including, you know, all of the material for the polling stations and everything, they've got tabulators. They've got an audio tabulation machine. Each riding has one. So I'm pretty happy about this, thinking, great, I get to full marks elections New Brunswick. They haven't got everything right, but that one they did. This is very good. So I'm planning to go to my returning office, that central hub place in our, in our riding, and vote. And I can do it on off hours because you can go anytime you want to vote, provided they're open. You don't have to do it during the advanced polls, and you certainly don't have to wait till election day. So um, I get there yesterday and walk into the office and they say, oh, here's your little cardboard sleeve, you know, the little template that most of us are probably familiar with where it's got little holes where you mark an X and they slip that over the ballot. And if you're lucky, it stays in place and you just hope like crazy you don't spoil your ballot or you don't vote for the wrong person because the person lining it up didn't do it, et cetera, et cetera. I said, no, no, I don't want, and they only had it in English. They didn't have a French version anyway, which is deplorable in this bilingual country. I said, no, I want to use your tabulator. They said, oh, we haven't got it set up. I said, set it up. Look, you, you got to get this sorted out for in time for election day anyway. You know, this, this is, um, you know, you got five days to sort of get this, get this right. Do it now. I can wait. And they say, oh, well, I'm going to have to put gloves on and, you know, we've got to get headphones and go ahead. That's fine. That's what it's here for. Well, there's people waiting to vote behind you. Okay, that's the wrong thing to say. I said, you sort this out right now. I said, in fact, I'm going to go tell my husband, please go run your errands. I'm going to be here for a while. So I go out into the office and I'm, I'm blazing mad at this point. And I, I say, you know, Emmanuel, just go do whatever you have to do. I'm here for the duration because they are setting this thing up. I'm voting today and I'm using that tabulation machine. So I go back in. There's a flurry of activity. There's three staff members opening boxes, pulling out stuff, undoing, you know, cellophane from whatever the heck, you know, headphones and, and controller, you know, so they've, one person is this older woman's reading the manual. Uh, her aunt is, you know, double checking where she is on the other photocopied page. <laughs> and there's a guy, you know, plugging cables in and, and, um, setting up this and plugging in that. And they have to look at the diagrams. And then page 83 says, you know, press the, the red X in the middle to, to start it. And you have to choose what setting you want. And, you know, cause you could, if you had limited use of your hands, you could use a, a paddle. 
I guess, to vote. If you had no mobility whatsoever and you just had, you know, the use of your mouth, you could, you could blow into a, uh, some sort of a, I don't know, receptor thing to, um, to register your vote too. So it's pretty cool. Like it, it, you know, for any kind of physical disability, this machine was totally what you wanted, right? But then they had an audio setting with a Braille controller, which was super cool. It's color coded. It's got Braille all over it to tell you which arrow does what. And, you know, very, very well done. So I'm happily with my headphones tabbing through this thinking, oh, this is so great. Good for them. I get to the list of candidates. Now, in our riding, there should have been six parties represented. I only have three names on my list. The ethical question is, if my particular party had been there, would I have simply voted and said, la, 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 and gone away and said nothing? Uh, fortunately, I didn't have to make that particular decision. Uh, my party that I wanted to vote for wasn't listed. I couldn't exit the thing. The only thing I could do was not choose a candidate, print the ballot, and spoil the ballot. So I said to the people, I said, there's, I don't have any choice. I have, I, my, you don't have all the parties represented here. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know what, to, I didn't know what to do. I said, I, the, the only choice I have is to print a ballot. I said, I'm going to spoil a ballot, but I want to be able to vote. Yes, yes, yes. I said, I'm, I'm afraid we're going to have to do the, the, the template, that awful cardboard template thing. No problem. No problem. We'll help you. Okay. So the, the staff member is reading me the names on the template. God bless him. He couldn't pronounce them properly. I don't think he could read them. I don't think he had good glasses. Like I think he was an elderly gentleman and he was struggling to to pronounce the names of the of the candidates. He said, "Oh, you know what? I'll just read you party affiliations. Is that okay?" And I thought, oh, "What the hell?" At this point, so he reads me the list and he says, "Okay, I'm going to set it up so that 2 through 7 have a No, 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 wait. I'll I'll set it up so that 1 through 6 have a have a uh, um, a place to mark a, a ballot. I'm going. Oh my god, <laughs> this is this is totally going from bad to worse. So I make my X, and then I think, oh, shit, I have to find out whether, in fact, I voted for the person I wanted. I've got to make sure that I voted in the right place because if if another ballot got spoiled or or God forbid, I voted for the candidate underneath mine was absolutely not the person I wanted to vote for. So I had to ask the guy to make sure that my ex went in the right spot. Like, this is not on in 2020. This is not on. So, you know, I ended up voting and they, the machine took my ballot and it's all, you know, great. I, I uh, well, it's at least, you know, passable. So my question to anybody that I could think of, the, the all six parties and the media in New Brunswick was this. Sure, it's important for me to be able to vote secretly. That's that's very important. It's a de- democratic right, and I, sh- I should have all the candidates there, and it shouldn't have been so difficult. And there and there shouldn't have been subtle pressure put on me to just just figure out, figure out what to do. Would any vision impaired person in my position have have done what I did? Would some people have felt so guilty for having put everybody out for fifteen minutes and knowing that there's a lineup behind them to vote? Would somebody have said? Oh, to heck with it. I'm just going to vote this party. They would have been my second choice anyway. Or just, okay, I won't use your audio tabulation machine. I'll, I'll, I'll just, I'll skip it and I'll just get sighted assistance. Or, you know, we just want to make it quick and easy for everybody. But there's a, I think there's a bigger issue at play here. And that is 49 different ridings in New Brunswick have tabulators with presumably inaccurate representation of candidates are we going to have admissible election results? 
So now Elections New Brunswick is saying, oh, they should have been right. It was a glitch in your machine. The thing is they had 18 hours between the time when candidates had to declare and when the advance polls start. In that time, they had to print ballots for hundreds of thousands of people voting accurately. And they had to, what, program audio tabulators? I find that very hard to believe. Anyway, that's my voting story. I would just say blind people around the world who are being given this technology to vote with, just think. Make sure that you've got all of the pieces needed to vote because uh, I bet if it's happened here, it's happened other places or it could happen other places that, that somehow the machines aren't programmed accurately or there just hasn't been enough time. I mean, I, I appreciate oversights are possible. What a wonderful contribution. Thanks for sending that in, Rebecca. I do hope that you have contacted election officials and the media as well, because this really is a serious issue. I must say in passing, when I listen to Canadian election coverage, the first time I heard a Canadian election a very long time ago, I thought, what is this riding thing they talk about? To me, congressional districts, electorates, constituencies, they're sort of fairly self-evident terms. But I wonder why Canadians call them ridings. Where's the origin of that term? I think I asked this previously in a Canadian election, and I think there is a plausible explanation for it, but it's a very interesting term. I have been meaning to raise the question of voting here for people to comment on. We've got an election in New Zealand coming up. It was delayed. It was supposed to be on the 19th of September. There was a minor COVID outbreak, so they've postponed it to the 17th of October. And, of course, there's the federal election in the United States in November where many people are voting by mail. And I have been following with some interest the legal action that has been taken about mail voting where there's no accessible alternative. So I'd be interested in hearing people's stories from around the world about how you vote accessibly or, more to the point, are you able to vote accessibly? The American system sounds quite complicated to me. Voting in the United States has always seemed quite complicated to me because here in New Zealand, you have ballots that you mark with a cross and that kind of thing. In America, they seem to have all these different machines. Even in the old days, before touchscreens, they had these machines where you pulled the levers and things. So I'd like to know about your past and potential future voting experiences has voting become more accessible for you? What's your best voting experience? What's also your worst voting experience? And how can you resolve it? And I will explain how things work here in New Zealand. Blind people lobbied a long time ago in our national elections for the rights of a blind person to take anybody of their choosing into the polling booth with them to assist them to cast their vote. And if you want... You can then give your ballot to a scrutineer who is at the polling station and ask them what's on my vote so you can verify that the person assisting you cast your vote the way that you wanted. Now, that is not casting a secret ballot, clearly. There was, for some time, a Braille template or a tactile template, I think, and it sounds very similar, Rebecca, to the overlay that you were talking about they discontinued that somewhere along the line, and I think that was just due to lack of uptake. So if you wanted to vote, you would go to your polling place and either have somebody assist you to vote, who was an official there, or take someone in with you, and optionally, 
have someone assist you. Clearly not a very satisfactory situation. And then a few elections ago, there was an agreement reached with the Electoral Commission where they set up a telephone-based voting system for blind people. So the way it now works is that you can still use all those methods. If you want to go down and vote and take someone of your choosing in with you, you can still do that. And actually, when my children were younger, I would do this because I wanted to instill in them the importance of casting your vote. And it's quite nice when I hear my children, who are largely grown up now, chastising their significant others at the very suggestion that their significant other is not going to vote. You know, they won't tolerate that. So I'm glad I have instilled the importance of democracy in them. So it was a kind of a teachable moment. But now there's also this telephone-based option. And the way that it works is that if you want to use a telephone-based voting system as a blind person, you call a special toll-free number during a pre-registration period and you register. You give your details and they check the electoral roll to ensure that you are registered to vote. And if you are, you can register for the telephone-based voting service. Once you've done this, it invalidates your ability to wander down to a polling place to vote the old-fashioned way. When you do the registration process, you're asked to choose from a series of secret questions, and then you provide the answer to that secret question. What then happens is that you are either emailed, texted, or given verbally for you to write down a secret code. When it's voting time, and you can vote in advance if you want during the advanced voting period, or you can vote on election day. I always vote on election day because, you know, I'm not particularly loyal to any one party and my voting preference could change based on the way the campaign goes. So when it's voting time, you call a number and you say that you want to cast your vote and then you provide your secret number that was texted, emailed or dictated to you. So the person you're talking with over the phone doesn't know your identity. Once that number is typed into their system, they ask you your secret question. They have the answer recorded there and you provide the answer. If you've authenticated successfully, then you can cast your vote. The official who has been trained for this specific purpose will then read you the candidates and the parties. We have a mixed member proportional system here. So you get two votes one for your local electorate MP and the other for the party that you want to have the most seats in Parliament. So you cast those two votes. Then you get transferred to a second official. And that second official has not been involved with your vote until now. And they are handed physically the ballot paper and unprompted they will read the ballot paper back to you and tell you how your votes have been cast you confirm that that is correct, and then you actually hear them physically dropping it in a ballot box for the purpose. So it's not particularly high-tech, but it is actually quite user-friendly because people who might be daunted by touch-tone interface systems or anything like that are not daunted by this process, really, because it's all human interaction. Now, that is our national elections, and I think that's a pretty adequate system Our local elections are an accessibility debacle because it's all done by mail and there are quite a lot of votes to be cast, unfortunately, with various local government entities. So you receive quite a lot of bump in the mail, voting papers in the mail, 
And the only way to complete that at the moment is with sighted assistance, which is a bit of a travesty, really. And I completely understand why those in the United States who might be facing a similar method of voting are making a noise about it, rightly so. In terms of your question, Rebecca, about whether other blind people might have chosen just to go with the old cardboard template and not held things up while the machine was set up, absolutely some blind people would do that. There will be people who say, don't be unreasonable, you could have still cast a secret ballot, why hold everybody up? That's just blind people being entitled. Now, I am not one of those people. I think that being able to cast a ballot securely, confidently, in an informed way, is a fundamental tenet of democracy. If we can't vote as secretly and accessibly as everybody else, what does that say about our status as citizens of our respective nations? It's such a fundamental thing. So I applaud you for standing your ground. More blind people need to do those things, in my opinion. We shouldn't have to settle for this second-class status like we're just too much trouble, whether it be voting or Apple Watch beaters or whatever. We count. We matter. I hope that we hear some follow-up on this one, Rebecca. I hope that you raise this with appropriate officials and that they respond and tell you what went wrong and, most importantly, what they'll be doing to ensure that it doesn't happen again because it sounds, in principle like they really have given some thought to this. And snap elections are always difficult. I guess in the United States, they're not really familiar with the concept of a snap election because barring some weirdness, you could go 100 years into the future and um, know when the election is going to be held 100 years from now. With uh, other democracies, that's not necessarily the case, particularly those that have their roots in the Westminster system. So good luck. I hope that we will get some discussion about how people from all around the world cast their votes as blind people. It'll be a fascinating discussion. Kathy Blackburn continues the discussion, and she's reporting in from Austin in Texas. She says, since Texas as yet has no accessible means for a blind person to vote absentee, we will be voting early in person using an accessible machine. We will wear our masks and bring hand sanitizer. When Travis County first got voting machines, there were only enough accessible ones to place one in each polling place. Sometimes one poll worker would have to go find a colleague who knew how to set up the machine, but we were always able to vote. Since there was only one accessible machine, if the ballot was long, as it will be this year, we had to spend twice as much time at the polling place since Audley or I would have to use the machine while the other one waited. The county got new machines a couple of years ago from a different vendor, and now all the machines are accessible. Sighted voters have to interact with the machines via a touchscreen, but we use earphones and a keypad. When we have cast our votes, the machine prints out a paper ballot and we place it in the ballot box. Thank you, Kathy. So when you get that ballot printed out, are you able to take it to an official to verify that it's what you think it is? Because obviously a sighted person could inspect the printed ballot, couldn't they? So I presume you do have the right to do that. 
David Globe says, why do we constantly have to fight the battle of not only developing something to help those of us who need it, but then we have to convince and educate our sighted peers so they can then seemingly show other blind people how to use the new system. If there were a way of communicating with all people who need the technology and leave out those who don't need to learn about it, then we might be able to move forward a little quicker. Case in point, when I got a Braille printer, the person who demonstrated it to me had no clue what was being printed. He just knew it was supposed to be what he had typed. What is the most populous democracy in the world? It is, of course, India. And if you guessed India, bing, get 20 points and listen to this email that is most informative from Anil, who says, Hello, Jonathan, this is my voting experience in India as a blind person. First, please remember I've only voted one time as I crossed the required age of 18 in 2018. The elections were held in 2019. My second vote will be in 2024. Coming to the website, it is mostly accessible. At the time of the 2019 elections, the audio capture option on the website was not there, but now it is provided and it works fine. Note, the capture letters are given in capitals, which is not indicated by the audio capture. I cannot speak about the accessibility of the website for deafblind persons. During the registration process, they ask you to select disability, under which blind is an option. Now, on to the part of electing. The polling stations are given to you as per your address, less than one kilometre. You can bring an assistant yourself or contact the election commission to get assistance. The transportation process also can be your choice, or you can get it arranged by the election commission. Some person in a news article told how he got a call from the election commission about his requirements, transportation, which is not in my case. I was accompanied by my brother and father as three went to the polling station at the same time and my father acted as my assistant. Apart from casting my vote, the assistant has to sign, stating who he or she is responsible for assisting, and they are responsible for any misconduct. Then you will be sent to a room where the EVM is located. I I think that stands for Electronic Voting Machine. The EVM controller says ready, which means you can cast your vote, the EVM has braille numbers, one, two, three, etc. Besides buttons, at the opposite side of the buttons, there should be names of the parties printed in braille, although I am not sure, as my dad told me, which party is at what number, so I press the button without checking clearly. After you press the button, you hear a long beep, then the controller says, OK, that is it. You have elected your candidate. Bingo. Thank you, Anil. Appreciate it. Jane Jordan, back in the United States, says, Hi, Jonathan. I have a couple of stories about voter registration. One from when I lived in Tennessee and one when I moved here. I think she's in Pennsylvania, if I'm remembering correctly. When I lived in Tennessee, it was always frustrating to vote. There was only one time... And that was the year I left when I was able to fill out a so-called accessible ballot. And to read the ballot, I had to push every button. There were buttons on the left and right edges of the machine. But 
I got my vote cast. Before that, though, I relied on Eric, that's Jane's husband, to read my ballot choices. He would say, the office is, and whatever the office was, and would read off the stuff like it was written on the ballot. I would tell him my choice, and he would always repeat it back before we moved on. To this day, he swears that if I ever told my family I voted one way and he knew I did not, he would back me up because he felt my vote should remain private. He still does. In addition to having him read me the choices, I always had to go through this process of confirming with two or three different people that, yes, I wanted him to read the vote and that I did not want anyone else observing me. Then came the worst experience. It was 1998, the year Tommy Burks was killed. I felt so strongly that his wife should be able to take his seat that I volunteered to work election day with several different people holding up a sign with the candidate's name so people would remember how to spell it. You had to get it spelled right or it didn't count. But before my shift, I decided to vote. Perhaps I should have tried to do it earlier, but at that time, I didn't know how bad it would be. Though, as I said, this was worst. I stood there, red-faced, angry and humiliated, as the ladies debated, in tones that I could clearly hear, whether I had the right to vote. One of them clearly said, she's blind, is she even allowed to vote? And they took forever to get it sorted. This caused me to be late for my shift, but they understood. The second worst experience was when I decided to do early voting. I thought I had learned, you see, and after I did that, somebody came by our house with some cookies and religious tracts. They said they got my name off the voter registration pages, and I was infuriated. When I called to complain, I kept getting told they were only trying to help. And I yelled at them they had no right to violate my privacy and look up my personal information like that even if they were a volunteer. Officially, nothing was said, but it never happened again. Fast forward to my first election in Philadelphia. Must have been in 2007 when we voted in our primary. I was anxious to say the least, but I figured I'd better try. The experience was so completely different. They didn't give me any trouble. They didn't ask if I was allowed to vote. When I asked if there was any sort of accessible machine or if Eric would have to assist me, they not only told me there was a machine, they had a man trained on it there in a flash. He does this every year. The instructions were clear, I could hear all the ballot choices, and I could make changes before casting my vote if I wanted. I've done that every election except for this year. When I am late to vote or do not show up with Eric, they always ask if I am coming to vote and if everything is okay. I don't mind that. This year, we switched to vote by mail because of the coronavirus. I don't want to go to the polling place. The trouble is that I am once again forced to rely on Eric to mark my choices. I know he puts down what I tell him, but I don't like it. I wish voting by mail were more accessible, but I don't know how it can be done. Thank you, Jane. Yeah, I would love to see us move to online voting, but I certainly accept, and uh, particularly in the United States where Russia is continually <laughs> meddling in your elections, I can understand why there's a lot of concern about doing that. It could easily be tampered with. But isn't it a shame that we have to go through all these struggles? Eh? It's just appalling. When I 
used to go down to the polling place to vote, occasionally I would be challenged when I would want to bring somebody of my choosing into the polling place with me. And they would say, you can't do that. It has to be an official. And I would say, no. The first time it happened to me, I knew the section of the Electoral Act, the actual legislation that allowed me to do that. But that didn't really cut the mustard because they didn't have the legislation there. What they had was a manual that was prepared for electorate officials every election time. So I got to calling them ahead of time and saying, what section and page of your manual this year explains the rights available to blind people? And so if I was challenged, and occasionally I was, I would say, look up page, whatever section, whatever of the manual, and they would, and usually that sorted it out. Hello, Tracy Duffy in North Carolina. She says voting here in North Carolina is accessible if you do it in person and the voting machine works. We have the machine known as Automark, I believe it is. You can put on a headset and the buttons to navigate are very tactile. A screen reader gives you the instructions and reads as you navigate through the ballot. Last time I voted, the machine wouldn't work, and my partner and I ended up having a poll worker fill out our ballots by hand. When the machine works, you can also turn off the screen so no one can read over your shoulder as you vote. If all is working, you can vote completely independently and with privacy. If you need to do an absentee ballot, it is not accessible here. You must get someone to help you fill it out. There is currently a lawsuit addressing this issue in North Carolina. Bonnie and I were very sad to hear of the death of Charlie Crawford yesterday as I put this show together. And I'd like to take some time to remember and honour Charlie. And if you would like to share any memories that you have of him, you're welcome to contact us using the usual channels. Charlie made an enormous contribution to bettering the lives of blind people in the United States and at times during his career, the wider disability community. I first became aware of Charlie when I was online using the old bulletin board systems and I learned that he had set up one at the Massachusetts Commission for the Blind. This would have been through FidoNet. At that stage, he was the commissioner at the MCB. Despite the long-distance charges and the difficulty in staying connected via a modem to a computer half a world away, I would regularly call the MCB BBS to hang out and find out what Charlie and his team were up to. Even then, through a 2400 board modem and later a 56K modem, Charlie came across as an articulate and passionate advocate, an innovator who harnessed technology for the betterment of blind people. Many still fondly remember the Talking Checkbook program that he and Don Barrett worked on. By 1998, many of us were online by now using the internet. There was quite the buzz when it was announced that Paul Edwards, the president of ACB, had lured Charlie away from Massachusetts to be ACB's new executive director, the successor to Oral Miller. He began in November of that year. I believe this ushered in a golden era for ACB, with inspiring leadership at the governance and the operational arms of the organisation. Internationally, NFB had a much higher profile, but with Paul Edwards and Charlie Crawford pushing things along, national and international interest in ACB increased markedly. Charlie was a gifted communicator, not just an orator, but he genuinely did communicate well with people. He believed in the power of grassroots organisations. 
Innovations, such as the news notes from the national office, regularly kept the membership informed and made them feel a part of what was going on, and there was a lot going on back then. It was my privilege to work closely with Charlie when I was hired to found and direct ACB Radio, and it always made me feel proud when ACB Radio did something Charlie considered meritorious enough to be included in those news notes from the national office. He was always asking me about all the pioneering internet radio things that we were doing at ACB Radio. He was passionate about them, and he believed in them. He thought it was all very cool, and he couldn't have been more supportive. After term limits meant that Paul Edwards was no longer president of ACB, the organisation started taking an autocratic turn I found deeply troubling. While always professional, Charlie said just enough to encourage me to hang in there and remember the bigger picture, the good that we were doing, how many people appreciated the work that was going on. But things finally got too much, and just when I needed it most, I received another job offer. I resigned in June of 2003 and left the organisation in mid-July after the convention. When I attended that final ACB convention as ACB Radio Director, in behaviour that can only be described as churlish and petty, no acknowledgement was made on the convention floor of my departure nor my contribution. Soviet style, it was like I didn't exist anymore, even to the point that no place or food was organised for me at the convention banquet. Charlie, Penny Reader and other wonderful members of the ACB staff at National Office organised a function for me to say thank you and present me with a golden microphone which I still have on my desk today. It's beside me as I speak. That's the kind of thoughtful, passionate, sensitive guy that Charlie was. That same convention saw Charlie's bravery and integrity on full display. He must have known that he was potentially putting a stable job he loved on the line when he got up at the 2003 convention to speak passionately against an amendment which would have curtailed the rights of ACB members who also happened to be staff. Charlie's speech defending freedom of speech and freedom of association, saw the amendment defeated resoundingly and put a process in train right after the convention adjourned that led to Charlie's departure from ACB in October of that year due to irreconcilable differences. When you're a chief executive or in any senior role, you do have to swallow some dead rats, but you must also never forget where you've come from and know when something is so anathema to your values that your integrity requires you to speak out. Charlie never forgot where he came from, who he truly served, those blind Americans who chose to be ACB members. He put it all on the line because he knew he was right and that ACB's values were under threat. That was Charlie's guts, bravery and integrity on show for all to see and I'm sure he paid a very high price, not just financially, but also in terms of the stress caused. Based on his brief statement, it was clear to me that Charlie had a gagging clause in his settlement agreement that is not uncommon, so I broke my own silence about my departure from ACB Radio. No one asked me to do it, but I wanted to stand in solidarity with Charlie. Charlie was a man worth doing that for. Charlie and I moved on, 
but we did keep in touch from time to time, and in recent years he became a regular listener to Mushroom FM. He would often send email to Bonnie and me with requests, personal updates and little pieces of news that he thought might interest us. He was always bringing people together, putting people in touch with one another who he thought might have something in common or could join together to make a positive impact. You may recall that the last contribution to this show from Charlie was his fascinating recollections about people and events surrounding the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act on its 30th anniversary. Charlie was gregarious, he had a great sense of humour, he looked for talent and he encouraged that talent to thrive. And he was a hell of a nice guy. Charlie and I only worked closely together for the briefest of times. There are people who of course knew him and know of his contribution far better than I, and I hope that they will share their memories of Charlie with us. But I know that through his contributions, Charlie leaves the world a fairer, more accessible place, full of people who will take up the mantle and strive for a tomorrow that is even better for blind people than today. That's what Charlie Crawford stood for, and that's how we can best honour him. Thank you, Charlie. Knowing you even in the small way that I did enriched my life so much, and it was an absolute privilege. And Bonnie's in the studio now. This is a sad occasion to be together. Tell me about your memories of Charlie. I first met Charlie, I think it was in 1997, and it was my second ACB convention. My first one was in Phoenix in 1992, I believe it was. And um, the Seeing Eye was having some sort of forum. I, I forget exactly what it was. It seemed like it was a a day-long thing, and there was um, groups that met, and it seemed like they had kind of an open time for people who were interested in learning, guide dog people who were interested in learning about the seeing eye, whether they be first-time guide dog users or switching schools, and they came in, and they had a dinner that night, and I actually sat at the table with Charlie, and at that time, he was uh, commissioner of the Mass Commission for the Blind, which is ironic because... You know, 13 years later, I'd be working for them. And at that time, I was um, working for the state of Tennessee. And I asked him, did he know our, our uh, they, we didn't call him a commissioner, it was director, and he did. So that was the first time I met Charlie. And then, of course, just being involved with GDY and um, that's Guide Dog Users Incorporated and working at the seeing eye charlie would call the seeing eye and i i saw him in class when he got his dog and um just getting to to kind of know him from from there i guess i probably got to know charlie more when i started my show here on mushroom fm and he did listen to the 80s lady show and he also was a big fan of the mosin explosion he would e- email in uh quite frequently and just recently, he had sent me a, a birthday greeting. Mm. He'd sometimes phone in as yeah, well. He'd phone so, in he, he, and, yeah, yeah. But one thing about Charlie that I do remember is he was really, if he got into something, he was super enthusiastic about it. And yeah. so he wasn't just a guide dog user, a guide dog handler. I mean, he was really into it, wasn't he? He was oh, quite yeah. active in his GDU. Very active. Yeah. He served on the board. Um, he was very, very active with his dogs. I don't know how many dogs he had. I know his most recent one is Raisin, 
and he would always sign his emails, Charlie and Susan and Little Raisin in the Sun. Um, <laughs> and he'd always say hello to Eclipse, wouldn't he? Always yeah. say hello to Eclipse, yes. <laughs> yeah. So And Lizzie, when Lizzie was uh, still guiding. But yeah, he was very, very active in GDY. And um, Penny Reader had written a very really nice tribute to him that I saw on the Seeing Eye list and talked a lot about how on some levels it was sort of fitting that he passed on 9-11 because she remembers him in the national office on September the 11th, 2001, when uh, there was the attacks in D.C. and in, in uh, New York City and Pennsylvania. And um, she remembers him being very concerned about everybody in the national office, getting home and getting out of there safely because no one knew what was going to happen next. We didn't know if it was over. You know, that was the sense up in, in where I was outside New York City. But he didn't leave the office until everyone else had had gone and was safely home with their families. And then he and his dog left to, to get on the metro. Just a, a very sad loss for he, you know, was instrumental in starting the Bay State Council, what became the Bay State Council of the Blind in Massachusetts, and of course served at MCB for 14 years, I believe it was, as his commissioner. And even when I joined MCB in, in 2010, they still talked a lot about Charlie and his influence on the commission and what a nice commissioner, a nice person he was. And he would go around, you know, talking to people. And that was that was Charlie. And you it know, is interesting. And then he went to ACB mm-hmm. where he had a similar impact. People still talk really fondly of his tenure as executive director of ACB, how impactful he was, how nice he was. Yeah, and you could talk to him. He would encourage people to to email him, and, you know, he had that aneurysm. And we believe it was 2003, and anyone out there can correct us, but just a discussion on the guide dog group that it was possibly 2003. And, you know, was very, very fortunate to have recovered from that. And after that, people would, you know, would encourage to email him and talk to him. And he would talk to you on any subject. You know, he, he was one of these people that knew a little, I think, about everything and was happy to, to talk about it with you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Bonnie. Here's Don Barrett. And he says, I had the distinct honor and privilege of working with Charlie on the Talking Checkbook a DOS-based program for blind people which worked with DOS-based screen readers. This was in the early 1990s. Of course, Charlie had already written the major part of it, but I called him with some ideas and he said, Hey, can you program? Well, I had learned some DBase 3 coding from Doug Wakefield's wonderful talking tutorials, I remember that, which taught so many of us so much, and I was so excited that I said, Sure, why not? Well, we added all kinds of new modules and made it print checks from a template, provide summaries of the status of the checkbooks and other fun stuff, including visits from Tempo, the talking cat, which was just another wonderful and fun idea of Charlie's. We had a ball working on it, and I learned to my pleasure what a fun, loving, playful and brilliant guy he really was. I am no programmer by trade, but thanks to Doug's tutorials and Charlie's prodding, I did what I could and it seemed to all work out. So, Charlie, thanks for your kindness, your inclusive attitude and for being so good at making things happen.
And most of all, thank you for making those who worked with you feel happier for the encounter. I am sure that wherever you are, you and Tempo will be making mischief and making life better for the world. Thanks, Don Barrett, for that lovely tribute. Jonathan, this is Dan Fry, and I just read your announcement for the podcast today where you disclosed that Charlie Crawford passed away. I just wanted to call and convey my condolences to all who knew Charlie and to acknowledge that we worked together quite well. Um, When I was chairman of the State Rehabilitation Council, to the Maryland Division of Vocational Rehabilitation. Charlie served on that council with me as the representative from the Maryland Council of the Blind. And despite being members of different political organizations of the blind, Charlie and I were always able to transcend any differences we had and to work together in a united front for the betterment of blind Marylanders. Of course, Charlie also had a national reputation, as you and Bonnie will no doubt reference, but he will definitely be missed, and I was saddened to read of his passing. Mosin at Large Podcast. On the subject of audiobooks, Carrie Francis writes, a couple of weeks ago, I was perusing Audible's app looking for my next great listen. I was logged in. I stumbled onto the audiobook Ravensbrück. Life and Death Inside Germany's Only Concentration Camp for Women by Sarah Helm. Immediately after reading the book Details, Publisher's Summary, I knew this was definitely the next great listen that I wanted to get. When I went to make my purchase with one of my two credits only a few hours later, however, the audiobook was no longer available to me. When I heard you mention Libro.fm, I thought this was a website with public domain audiobooks, but I decided to check it out anyway. I was delighted about many things. First, this site would allow me to listen to audiobooks on my computer without having to jump through multiple hoops. Second, it supported local bookstores. I could purchase audiobooks from their site even though I was in Canada. But the audiobook Ravensbrook was available for me on the site, even though I live in Canada, so I would be able to get it. Hopefully this would be the case if I created an account and logged into the site. There is just one problem. Libro.fm does not have an independent bookstore in the city where I live. I live in Kitchener. Do you know if this would prevent me from becoming a member? Also, do you know whether the audiobook which I am looking for would still be available to me if I created an account and logged into the site? Thanks for any help you could give me. Love your podcast, says Carrie. Thank you, Carrie. Yes, you can still have a Libro.fm account, even if you don't have a bookstore to support or you choose not to support a bookstore. So that's an optional feature. The only way to ascertain whether you can get the book would be to create an account and see. Creating an account is free. You don't have to subscribe to a plan that gives you a credit or anything like that. You can buy a la carte, as it were. But certainly there are some restrictions from time to time that results in an audiobook being available in one market but not another. So give it a shot, and I wish you the best with it. Christopher Wright, he says, Hello, Jonathan, I prefer commercial audiobooks over anything else. 
I have access to bad but can't tolerate most of the narrators. Most of my books come from Audible. I will listen to a book read by a TTS engine only as a last resort or if I don't like the human narrator. I wouldn't mind reading books in Braille with an uppercase B, but as it currently stands, I find it extremely tedious. If I had physical Braille books for everything I have read and plan to read, I would need to devote an entire room at a minimum to storage. Knowing me, it would have to be an entire building because there are so many books I love. I have a Braille display, but can't use it for extended periods of time. Reading a single line of seven or eight words and constantly refreshing gets very tedious very quickly. This is obviously not acceptable in the sighted market, and this is how I've described reading from a Braille display to many sighted people. It's great we have these displays, but they're incredibly inefficient for so many things, including reading a book. Until we have access to a refreshable Braille page that isn't exorbitantly expensive, I'll continue listening to audiobooks, including those narrated by TTS. I haven't touched a Braille book in years and don't plan on doing so in the future. When I can carry around hundreds of audiobooks and or hundreds of thousands of e-books on a device that fits in my pocket, I don't want or need bulky Braille hard copies. I would love to use refreshable Braille technology, but it is extremely frustrating in its current form. I believe Braille is an extremely important tool, but it needs to fully catch up with the digital age in order to continue to be truly useful. That is a fascinating take, Christopher. I would hate to carry around a Braille display that had multiple lines, let alone a full page, because it would add the very bulk that you talk about. I certainly can understand why, if all one can afford is, say, a 14 or even 18 or 20 cell Braille display, that might be a bit limiting. Although I do know many people who read books on 20 cell Braille displays. But to me, a 40 cell Braille display is just fine. You get into a rhythm. As I've said on the program before, reversing the thumb keys, at least for the way that I read Braille, makes a huge difference. And I find I can read with a lot of fluidity. I mean, I'm reading these emails with a Braille display that way. Let's cross the Atlantic and say hi to John Snowling. Hi, Jonathan. I want to take this opportunity to thank you regarding the Libro Audio Books site. At first, I was a bit sad they didn't have international membership, as I am in the United Kingdom. I hope this is something that is sorted in future. I am a first-time writer to the podcast. The one thing I am impressed with the Libro site is I managed to get all of the Ghost Finder series by Simon R. Green, which I'm very pleased about. Talking of EPUB books, where is the best place to obtain these for reading with Voice Dream Reader? I must admit that I still will use Audible, because I get two credits per month for £14.99p, and I can get an extra three credits if needs be for £17. I will definitely use Libro, though, if I find a book I like and can use a credit to get and have my own copy. Keep up the good work with the podcast, Jonathan. I really enjoy listening to it each week. With kind regards, and that is from John Snowling of Carlisle, the border city very close to Scotland. Thank you so much, John. Regarding EPUB books, 
I guess most people would get their content for Voice Dream Reader from Bookshare. I don't know. Maybe somebody else can recommend a site that is commercial in nature, kind of like Kindle and iBooks, but which sell unprotected ebook content. I guess what you're asking for is effectively the Libro.fm of text content. Hi, Jonathan. It's Tanya Harrison here. I'm absolutely loving the discussion on audiobooks. I tend to like different types of books for different types of reasons. Um, I love audiobooks for fiction. Certain books I don't mind abridged if they're read by a character out of a series. I've got some Star Trek books from the 90s that were read by some of the some of the actors, and I've actually enjoyed them under, um, abridged because I've either either seen the movie they're from or the episode, and sometimes I've even read them unabridged just to get the rest of the info. But I find that the abridged ones by you know commonly known people are quite enjoyable. Mainly when it comes to fiction, however, I do prefer unabridged books, and I like them to be by decent narrators. For example, like everyone said, the Harry Potter books, Stephen Fry, most definitely. Um, I find there's only one time I ever sent back a book, and it was one I wanted to read about music, and it was probably read by a volunteer from Australia who had an extremely well-spoken way of speaking, but when he was actually reading, his, his inflection was just very jerky so I tried speeding him up I tried doing all those things and no I just couldn't bear it when it comes to um, non-fiction however I really enjoy TTS I find I just want to analyze what's being said rather than the emotions Um, with autobiographies I love it when the authors read them themselves when it comes to technical manuals however I prefer braille so I find yeah there's different horses for different courses and like you I used to try and stop that wheel from spinning around as well on the APH machines. <laughs> yes, definitely a way to get out of reading a book. A teacher's asked you to read if you didn't want to read it. Oh, teacher, the book, the tape chewed up. I can't read it now. And I just want to mention one magazine that no one's actually mentioned that I really enjoyed. It was called Roundabout. It used to be a Braille one, and I quite enjoyed that. Yes, I remember Roundabout. It was from the RNIB, I'm pretty sure. And they used to have a little thing at the beginning that said something like, Dear Reader, Wherever You May Be, or something. I do remember regularly reading Roundabout. And as for you stopping the wheel, (laughs) it's like that old song, isn't it? Tanya stopped the wheel. Anyway, you wicked child. Wicked, wicked child. Hi, Jonathan, says Dan Tevelt. I really enjoyed the discussion about recorded books. I hate commercial audio books. I don't like putting up with obnoxious sound effects, music, multiple narrators, and worst of all, incorrect pronunciation of foreign words. I don't even like books where the author is quoting someone else and that someone else speaks. I recently read a commercially recorded book where Barack Obama spoke each time he was referenced. If I am listening to a recorded book, I want the narrator to just read the text with no interpretation other than speaking in appropriate accents for the subject matter. Books recorded by regional libraries aren't much better. There is either bad audio quality or the narrators are horrible. I can't count the number of times I have abandoned a recorded book from NLS 
and read the bookshare version of the book in Braille, with an uppercase B. On rare occasions, I have given up a book because it wasn't available on Bookshare. Phew, rant over. Thank you, Dan. (laughs) Carol Ashland says, I grew up with talking books, those scratched-up LPs, which morphed into smaller but still scratched-up records. Then we had cassette tapes, and now we have the digital players and bard. I love the digital player, with its ability to go up, go forward, insert, and then find bookmarks, and on and on. Of course, I read many books in Braille, especially when I attended the School for the Blind, but that's a different story. When I moved out on my own, I stopped reading books in Braille, simply because of the difficulty getting them back to the post office and then to the library. The absolute worst narration I've ever heard was a book by Sylvia Brown, The Lady Constantly Tripped Over Sentences, I've never heard such poor narration. I finished the book partly just to see if the narration continued to be that bad. It did. I grew up only able to read books from the Enelius Library and not really able to buy books. Now I can download books from Bard and keep them if I want to. I like the American narrators, probably because I'm American. Thank you, Carol. And you bring up another little facet to this topic, and that is the technology with which we have read talking books over the years. The technology that we had in New Zealand was for a long time quite different from the technology that you were using in the United States. I'm pretty sure that Brits who are listening and maybe other countries will be familiar with what we had because it all came from the UK. When I was growing up, we used to dismantle the old talking book machines in my sort of woodwork slash electronics classes and we would turn them into amplifiers and we would sell them for ten dollars or at least the woodwork teacher did i wonder who actually sort of pocketed that money but i bought an amplifier for ten dollars which for a kid in the 1970s was a fair chunk of money but it was just a mono amplifier that we converted this talking book machine into And it was really great. But the talking book machines that I grew up with were the Clark and Smith talking book machines. And I'm sure there'll be people in the UK listening to this right now going, oh, I remember those. They were humongous cassettes. They were these really big, chunky cassettes. And they had six tracks on them. You got to the end of a side and then you flipped the whole huge cassette over and you pushed the track button and then you got track two. So it's kind of like the four tracks, but they were much bigger and they were six tracks. And I'm just trying to remember how much time those cassettes could store. Something's telling me it was two hours per track. So that would be 12 hours on a six track sort of cartridge thing. So that was quite good. And when you rewound, some players did this and other players didn't. When you rewound, you could sort of hear these little index things like A2, A1. We got a lot of books from the RNIB as well as books that were recorded here on these big Clark and Smith cassettes. And then they did transition to the US four-track model on standard cassettes with special players that played the four-track content. So then we all got in sync 
We Catway over to Canada and Steve Catway says, Hi Jonathan, I very much enjoyed your interview with the folks from Libro.fm last week. While I applaud their efforts to support local independent booksellers and their business case in general, I have noticed that all the books I've searched for are abridged. I wonder if others have found this too, or is it the choices I've been making? I have not found this, Steve. I'm intrigued by this, because I did go ahead and search for quite a few books that I've read on Audible in the past, and all the ones I searched for came back on Libro.fm, unabridged, just like they're unabridged on Audible. So not sure what's going on there, whether I'm getting really lucky, or you got really unlucky. Iona is back, and she says thanks for all the interesting topics in your podcasts. About audiobooks, I like to read non-fiction with electronic voice. Fiction, if I have a choice, I enjoy most when read by someone who sounds like he or she resonates with the content and reads in an engaged way without letting their ego bring focus too much on the reader. I have had to give up on at least one book from the CNIB library because the volunteer reader sounded totally uninvolved, like news broadcasters. I ended up buying the book on Audible and loved it. But even for fiction, I often also get the text format, so I can go back and find small details or make notes of quotes that stood out. I love reading in Braille, but I'm not always patient enough with my speed. I am thinking of finding a Braille display more conducive for reading, but that's a whole other story. I currently enjoy the podcast Levar Burton Reads that has made me discover many new authors through the short stories he presents. And if, like me, you are a fan of Geordie LaForge in Star Trek Next Generation, it adds to the enjoyment. Still, my most precious memories are of books recorded by my parents in my childhood with classics like Kipling's Jungle Book, They figured out that, rather than me pestering them to read my favourites over and over, they might as well just record themselves as they read. These tapes have the added bonus of plunging me back into my kid days with many adjacent memories of events and thoughts from the time of recording. Now, a few responses to other listeners' posts. Someone asked about The Orbit Writer, and while I don't have it, there's a podcast episode from The Tech Doctor that describes it in detail that could be interesting. Finally, about Braille watches and telling time silently. The main reason I adopted the Apple Watch was because of the ability to quietly tap the time on my wrist. I'm, however, having very mixed results. About 60% of the time it works, but when it doesn't, The screen wakes up and voiceover unhelpfully starts chattering things, defeating the purpose of silent operation mode. Any tips for making this more efficient? I wish Apple would add a dedicated gesture for voiceover that could invoke this function. Well, first, Iona, that's a lovely story about your parents reading and the fact that you still have those recordings. That is super cool, isn't it? And I've got a lot of recordings that my kids and I did together And sometimes when the boyfs or the girlfs come over to meet the parents, I do take great pride in bringing them out. (laughs) I also find the tactic time, which is a wonderful feature of the watch, quite hit and miss. I'm trying to work out what the knack is to it. But what I have found is, of course, you can double tap the watch face to get the full time hours and minutes. If you can get away, if you already know what the hour is, I find triple tapping a bit more reliable. 
that's supposed to just give you the minutes, but if it interprets it as a double tap, at least you get the hours and minutes rather than voiceover. Uh, I remember I was at a funeral and I wanted to check the time <laughs> and I double tapped the watch face and, you know, right in the silent bit, it was like 11, you know, at the top of its lungs. So it is very unfortunate. I don't know whether anybody has developed a foolproof way of getting the taptic time to work 100% of the time. But if so, bottle it, sell it if you must, but tell us here on Mosin at Large. Sean is writing in and says, One of my favourite narrators who was often overlooked is Pam Ward. She read for NLS in the late 80s and early 90s. I then heard her read something commercially for Blackstone Audio in 2013, and she sounded like she hadn't aged a day. It was incredible. Multiple narrators in a book can work well so long as it makes sense. If the characters are drastically different, it can work. What bothers me is that in the end credits, they don't always tell who narrated which of the two characters, for example. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Podcast. Direct from Moose Jaw, Canada, Kelly Sapurja is back. He says, hi, Jonathan. I enjoy listening to podcasts on my iPhone 7 Plus using Castro, but there are times when I wish to listen to something over more high-quality speakers. What I've been doing is connecting one of my FM transmitters to the phone and tuning into its frequency on my stereo system, which does not have a line-in connection. I've also been considering getting a Bluetooth speaker, but I'm not sure which one to go for. If possible, I'd like to get a low-cost one, but that has high-quality sound. I was just wondering if you or your listeners have any recommendations. Hmm, it's been a while since I've looked at Bluetooth speakers, Kelly. A few years ago, I was quite impressed with the Logitech Boom range. At the time I was looking, they had a UE Boom, a, I think a Mega Boom, that's the one we ended up with, possibly a Mini Boom as well. I think they might have another one now called a Wonder Boom. The Mega Boom, which I think is probably obsolete now or been updated, was a cylindrical thing. And you could buy one, which gave a pretty good sound. It was mono, but you could buy a second one and pair them if you wanted to and get stereo sound and the separation was pretty good. So they do a nice job. I've heard good things also about JBL speakers. And of course, you've got your Bose that are in the Bluetooth category. And I think the Sonos speaker, the Move, is the only Sonos speaker that does Bluetooth. So that's probably not going to fit your category of being inexpensive, but it sure would give a nice sound. So we shall ask the audience, what Bluetooth speakers, if any, do you have? Do you like the one that you have? Would you recommend it? Hello, Ian Lackey, who says, I only have one Bluetooth speaker, and I don't think it would suit Kelly as the cost is not low. However, since I bought it as a lockdown cheer-up present, I have grown to love it. Yes, it is the Sonos Move. Sound quality is excellent, and it switches very easily from being connected to the Sonos network to Bluetooth. No, it is not low cost, but yes, it sounds great and definitely meets my needs. As far as I am aware, the Move is the only Sonos Bluetooth speaker. I have found it well worth the cost. 
Daniel is chiming in on the subject of Bluetooth speakers and says, I cannot recommend the JBL line Flip 3 enough. The sound is amazing. I am not, however, sure of the cost. I would go for that. Danny Keo is up at Stupid O'Clock and listening live. Oh, no. Does that mean that non-24 strikes again? <laughs> Sorry about that, Danny. He, but I'm glad you're here. He says, as for voting, we use exactly the same phone voting system you have here in Australia for both our state and federal elections. Local council elections are done by mail, and we can register to have the ballot paper in either Braille or large print. All elections are held on a Saturday and you can vote before election day if you wish to. Postal votes must be in, I think, two or three days before election day. I don't remember the exact number for that one. I do remember in the 2007 federal election, we trialled an electronic voting machine. Anyone with any kind of print disability could use this, not just blind people. I thought the system worked very well, but for some reason it was abandoned. We went to the phone voting system not long after that. I know very little about American politics, and to be honest, I'm not really all that interested. The one thing I do find crazy is that apparently each state over there has a different way of voting, even though it's for the same election. Why? Why do they insist on overcomplicating things like that? Surely it'd be far simpler if everyone used the same system, which is what happens in most other countries around the world. At least I know that whether I cast my vote here in Melbourne or the other side of the country, the way I vote will be identical. You were also asking about media. All radio, TV and print political advertising ends 48 hours before the election day. You can still hold press conferences, though. I'm not sure about social media, as I really don't follow any politicians. Completely changing the topic, as I've just heard you mention this, I currently have two Bluetooth speakers. I have a Bose SoundLink Mini 2, which is now six years old and still working well. I also have the UE Mega Boom 3. The Boom speakers are all stereo now. I can hear the stereo separation on the Mega Boom 3 from about three or four meters away. Love the podcast. Thank you, Danny. As for your questions about the U.S. political system, well, I have a degree in uh, this, and I could talk a long time about it, but needless to say, it is really, really broken. David Kingsbury is in touch and says, Hi, Jonathan. During last week's podcast, a listener named Peter asked how hard it is for people to learn Braille with an uppercase B as adults to the point of becoming fluent enough to read a book. From my own experience, as well as from those of nearly every other blind person I know who became blind as an adult and attempted to learn Braille, I have to say that it is extremely challenging. Shortly after becoming blind 16 years ago, I took both the Hadley Grade 1 and 2 Braille courses and practiced 30 minutes every day over a couple of years. I could not practice longer than that because I would lose feeling in my fingers. I got to the point where I read The Old Man and the Sea by Ernest Hemingway and felt a sense of accomplishment. The only problem was that this very short book, Two Hours in Audio, took me two months to finish with my fingers. Since then, I have pretty much forgotten everything except the simple alphabet. That said, I would never discourage anybody from trying to learn Braille in midlife. 
It is very useful for labeling things around the house, finding your hotel room when traveling, and getting to another floor in an elevator. It should be in every visually impaired person's toolkit. But for achieving the level of fluency that will enable you to enjoy a book or go through a restaurant menu, realistic expectations are important. Learning Braille is like learning a language. The only difference is that you learn it through your fingers rather than your ears and mouth. If you start learning as a child, you can get as good as any native speaker. But if you start as an adult, you may get fairly proficient, but you will seldom master the language in ways that children seem to be able to do effortlessly. Peter might be the rare person who proves me wrong, and that would be great. One thing I would say for sure to Peter: start learning with hard copy Braille and see how it goes for a few months. You will then be in a better position to make an informed decision about investing in a refreshable Braille display. Good luck to you and happy brailing. And Darren Linson says, when I was young, about fourteen or so, I wanted to learn braille. I've been visually impaired all my life. However, my mother was the one who basically told me that I was going to get into everything, and she was going to push me to be independent. I'm grateful for that push and the independence. Anyway, I went to a school for the blind throughout my high school days and wanted to learn braille. The school for the blind said no, as I had enough vision in my only eye, my right, to see print. Mind you, I had to hold it to my face, and even large print was very hard to read. My mom and I pushed for braille and pushed. The school taught me braille begrudgingly, taught me the basics and grade two. I was never taught math or any other computer language. I'm currently going through UEB and loving it. I remember the first time I was able to read a hard copy braille book from the school's library. The experience opened up a world to me that I never thought possible. I'm very glad that I was taught braille and couldn't imagine my life without braille, as my vision has gotten worse. I use braille in every aspect of my life and can't imagine where I'd be today without it. I improve and stay by my belief that every visually impaired or blind child or adult learn braille, as it will change your life as it's changed mine. Hi, Jonathan. It's Carolyn here. Just wanted to respond to the question about learning braille as an adult. I did this back in 2004. I wouldn't be able to advise on the program. However, I can tell you what my experience was. Both myself and my brother were born vision impaired, but over the years our vision has reduced. For me, I've only got light perception now and some colours, no details. When I learnt braille and made the decision to learn braille, I did it through the Royal New Zealand Foundation of the Blind. My braille teacher herself was a braille reader. That was really important for me. Because I was then working with someone that read Braille and used it on a daily basis, hence I got to ask a lot of questions that I had because of my knowledge that perhaps someone else who had lost their eyesight later in life but never been in the blindness community may not have had. I really enjoyed the process. I started with Grade One and then progressed into Grade Two. And I've never looked back 
since. I've used it with lots and lots of situations and I only wish that I had had it when I was vision impaired. So I really encourage you to give it a go, to enjoy the process, to keep practicing. That is the main thing. Where I'm weak in Braille is on my Braille writing. That's something I'm going to have to work on and get stronger. But that's because I learnt to write as a vision impaired person and, of course, then straight to the QWERTY keyboard. However, there is ways around this. I do, as I say, wish you good luck and I look forward to hearing about your progress. Thank you for the encouraging message, Carolyn. That's fantastic. Ruth Hartman writes, Hi, Jonathan. I love the podcast. I learned Braille in my late 50s about five years ago. I took three correspondence courses through the Hadley Institute in Illinois. Then I did some self-study with the McDuffie Reader and a few lessons with a Braille specialist at the Lighthouse for the Blind in San Francisco. My goal all along was to read books in Braille. I am now able to do that. I also use Braille for labelling and have a Braille pen pal. Learning Braille took a lot of work. What made the difference for me is that I really enjoyed it. I was enthralled by it, so I didn't mind putting in the time and effort. I read slowly, but with good accuracy. I have read five or six books so far. It's not like reading by sight or listening. I really get to savour every word as I decode it. I do have a brilliant BI40 Braille display, but I don't use it very much. I prefer to borrow books from the NLS and hold them and turn the pages. Learning and using Braille has been a big source of pride and enjoyment for me. Hi, Jonathan, and everyone listening to Mosin at Large. It's Brian Hartron speaking. First, thank you very much indeed for the description of the Focusrite 8i6 audio interface. It's now up and running, I'm glad to say, in the way that I hoped it would be, and I'm very pleased. The control panel is not particularly accessible, but I knew that when I bought it. The technical support department, however, is very good, and the people there are more than helpful. I listen to Mosin at large as thoroughly as I can, which is why I picked up on an inaccuracy referring to our company, Hartron Consultancy, quite close to the end of this latest episode. An email from Rick was read out, which claimed that our Reaper audio tutorial did not take account of the latest Reaper version and also that it focused exclusively on the Ray Access interface. For anyone who doesn't know, Ray Access is the interface between the Reaper audio software and the screen reader. Now, Rick has confessed to us all that he's not particularly patient. And I think even if he had listened to the introduction of the tutorial or read the accompanying text file, he would have noted that all ASARA procedures and keystrokes are given as well as those for Ray Access. ASARA is the other interface which is more commonly used these days. When I produced that training course three years ago, I was very careful about doing exactly that. Fortunately, even now, all those procedures and keystrokes in Asara still work, every one of them, and the good people behind it have been excellent at maintaining consistency. 
As to the other point about it not keeping pace with updates, the reason that I've taken time over this is because I'm not completely satisfied with all of the access to Reaper if Ray Access is not used, especially for beginners to this topic, which, after all, is what this is all about. I think, to some extent, the interface is easier in Ray Access for some people to work with. Even for something as basic as adjusting pitch gives no oral feedback without Ray Access. I get very tired of this kind of attitude that some people have when they think that if you press a keystroke and a spoken prompt isn't given, it is okay. It isn't okay because for many people, when they press a keystroke, they expect it to produce some kind of confirmation that the action has taken place. Otherwise, they might keep pressing it in the hope that it will give some spoken output. But that aside, I do hope that the training course will be updated before the end of the year. And I would like to extend it by adding some sections on video editing. But I'll only do it if we can get the standard of using Reaper with JAWS as good as it was when the original training course was produced. And at the moment, we're some way off that, in my view. I even tried it this morning to check I was correct. And there are some very basic requirements that are still not as I would like them to be. Call me particular if you like. I don't mind. But I won't apologise for trying to give blind people the very best that can be achieved. I'm sure these issues can be easily resolved, though, over time. Blind people not helping themselves on email lists. <laughs> this is not exclusive to blind people, I can assure you, as Jonathan pointed out. You should see the people, for example, on the Station Playlist Facebook group. <laughs> that is mainstream. And when you read a lot of those posts, you'll come away with the thought that actually blind people do a far better job of working with this software. Good training, perhaps, Jonathan? What do you think? Well, long live blind people. That's what I say. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> yes, I think also that it's true to say that often we attribute characteristics to the blind community, if there is such a thing, that are actually just characteristics of human nature. Thanks also for your comments on Reaper. We will have some very proficient Reaper users who are listening to this, I'm sure. But I don't want to leave anybody out. So let me start my comments by explaining that Reaper is recording and music software for PC and Mac. And the most commonly used term to describe programs like this these days is DAW, or D-A-W, Digital Audio Workstation. Reaper is a multi-track environment, so that's how it differs from, say, SoundForge or Studio Recorder. It is, in my view, a glorious audio adventure playground, and it's what I use to produce this podcast. There's a lot of audio terminology for noobs to come to terms with, and I think it's fair to say that Reaper is kind of idiosyncratic in the way that it does things. But then plenty of software can be accused of being idiosyncratic. When you get the hang of it, Reaper is incredible. And the thing I like about it is that you're never really done with mastering it. Even seasoned Reaper users will stumble upon some cool new feature of the software after having been using the thing for years. To maximize accessibility... Typically, you download and install three things. Obviously, you've got to get the Reaper software, and it's available for PC and Mac. It's also available in 32- and 64-bit form, and you can trial that. 
And given all that it does, the purchase price is pretty impressive, actually. Then you would install SWS, which adds some useful functionality to your installation, and, of course, Osira, which connects Reaper with your screen reader. I don't know about Supernova from Dolphin, but I know that Osira will work with JAWS, with Narrator, and with NVDA. If you're a JAWS user, optionally you can install Jim Snowbarger's free JAWS scripts, which work with Reaper and Osira. They have made audio production way more efficient for me, and I highly recommend them. So all these tools are free, with the exception of Reaper itself, which I think is about 60 bucks. And given all it does, that is an incredibly low price. As listeners will know, I'm not always opposed to sticking with the tried and true. As I've mentioned on this show quite recently, I still use the last version of Winamp, which was developed by Nullsoft. And uh, incidentally, Reaper is developed by Justin Frankel in part, who also was the founder of Nullsoft. So how ironic is that? But I listen to very little audio on my computer. Mostly I use my Sonos devices around the house or my iPhone. But Winamp plays all the audio formats I require, including FLAC, which is a lossless audio codec. But my personal view is that Ray Access has long had its day. It isn't supported by its developer anymore, and it hasn't been updated in ages. And Reaper isn't the static environment that Winamp is. Reaper is a sort of living, breathing thing. So not only are versions of Reaper coming out regularly, it's quite rare actually to see a couple of months go by without a new one, but Osara is also updated regularly. For example, I recently installed a snapshot build of Osara that made a huge difference to the accessibility of the Reaper preferences screen. New and useful functionalities being added all the time. There's no getting past the fact that Ray Access is now a Reaper graveyard. You're going to miss out on accessibility development and almost no one's using it. Now, I actually did purchase Brian's course and in my view, the course, which is called Don't Let Reaper Be Grim, really clearly explains some of the fundamental principles of recording in a multi-track environment and specifically doing that with Reaper. The core concepts of how to make a recording, how to set up a multi-track environment, that kind of thing, they are native to Reaper, so they're very much applicable. And as Brian says... The Osara keystrokes are frequently mentioned throughout, but my personal preference at this point would be to have a version of that tutorial that deletes all references to Ray Access, because at the moment I really think it is just clutter and it confuses people, and if they install the wrong thing, and by the wrong thing I mean Ray Access, they're going to inevitably have to unlearn anything they've done with Ray Access and relearn what they've got to know with Osara. And I, I don't think that that's particularly helpful to the end user. And I think there is a huge untapped market for this. There are many blind people who want to get into Reaper and they're looking for well-produced training material. One source of such material is a site called Ray Producer. That's reaproducer.com, and that is where Garth Humphreys does a fantastic job of demonstrating tasks like recording, applying effects, and the all-important use of automation by way of envelopes. I can't recommend this material enough. It's really well produced, it's accurate, and it's free. Garth uses a Mac, but he also gives the PC keystrokes. But one day, somebody is going to produce an OSIRA-specific comprehensive, well-produced and listenable magnum opus on using Osara and Reaper. It'll be long, 
because there's a lot that you can do with this thing. And I believe that people will pay for that in recognition that it will have taken a lot of effort to produce. Reaper is a complex wee beast, although I don't want to put anybody off. The basics are easy enough to master, and there is plenty of support out there, which is another reason why Ray Access has effectively had a decent burial a long time ago. If you want a community to help you, they're all using Osira for very good reason. While no email list is free of idiotic trolling completely, the Reapers Without Peepers email list operates most of the time in a cooperative spirit of information sharing like Osara itself. And I personally find it refreshing that some very talented people, irrespective of screen reader preference or sometimes even screen reader affiliation or political opinion or anything else at all, just like pooling their talent to constantly improve access to something so many blind people love to do, making audio. And I think that that's worthy of our full support. We have so many battles to fight that when we can all work together to improve our lot, not only should we do it, I'd suggest that we have a moral imperative to do it. You can find out more about Reaper Accessibility by going to that very URL, reaperaccessibility.com, where you'll find links to a range of resources. Now, when we get a criticism of a product, I do try to reach out wherever possible and offer a right of reply. And so I reached out to the Osira development community to ask if anybody would like to come on the podcast to offer a perspective on Osira and some of the concerns that Brian raised regarding speech feedback. Hi, all. Scott Jesworth here coming at you from sunny London town. On the episode before this one, apparently a chap called Rick had some criticisms of the Don't Let Reaper Be Grim course from Harjan Consultancy. By now, you'll have heard that Brian's popped up on this episode to, uh, well, I think he's going to call it set the record straight. I might go for over-justify his position if I was splitting hairs. Either way, Jonathan reached out to ask whether anyone who was heavily involved with Asara wanted to respond to Brian's message. And I suppose the answer to that is yes because here I am. Purely to set up some context, I'll tell you that I've been using Reaper since 2008. Man, that's a long time. I was heavily involved in the development of Reaccess, the now abandonware accessibility extension that Brian's course is still, at least in part, based on. Since then, I've fundraised to get Asara development going, and I hired Jamie Tay to steer that ship Nowadays, I handle most, but not all, of the advocacy and dialogue that happens between blind and visually impaired users and the Reaper developers themselves. I moderate the Reapers Without Peepers email list, which, to my knowledge, is the biggest collection of Reaper users who require accessibility in any one place. I maintain a very active presence on the Reaper Access WhatsApp channel, and a fairly active presence on all of the Reaper-related channels of the new DAW World Discord server that's just sprung up. And now that the humble brags are over and done with, I'll get on to responding to some specifics. Hooray, I hear you say. It's true to say that there are some contexts where Asara provides less spoken feedback than Reaccess used to. But what's also true is that many of those contexts are by design. In my opinion, and it's important to remember that this is just an opinion, an opinion based on working in a ton of different production environments over the years maybe, but still just an opinion. Generic feedback, the type of feedback that Reaccess was providing much of the time, can be even more confusing than no feedback. 
I'd even go so far as to argue that in some fast-moving production processes, generic feedback can be dangerous. Bear with me a second while I lay out an example for you. Let's imagine this. It's a busy day, you've got a project to finish, you've got a list of tasks as long as your arm to smash through and a deadline licking at your heels. So, in you go. You're editing like the clappers. You hit a key to execute an action, your screen reader echoes the name of that action, bada boom, you're on to the next task. Well, here's the problem. If it's just generic feedback that your screen reader's giving you, all it's done is echoed a response to the key that you just pressed. But in Reaper, everything, and I do mean everything, is context sensitive. So that generic piece of feedback that your screen reader would have just given you in that example guarantees nothing. Which is why we don't put development time into Asara providing generic feedback. What we focus on instead is providing relevant contextual information. Now, whether we're currently providing enough of that information is a debate that honestly might never reach a conclusion. I would say very nearly. Brian clearly thinks differently about it. But that brings me to the meat of why I'm here. Brian, we can't implement features that we don't know you're waiting for. To be as frank as I feel comfortable being on this platform... Brian, it blows my tiny mind that you've been trying to position yourself as an authority on Reaper accessibility since 2017, and yet you're not part of RWP, you're not part of the WhatsApp, you're not part of the Discord, I've never seen you post about accessibility on the Cocos forum. It's not because you're unaware of these places. I know that to be true because over the last couple of years, I've sent you a number of emails trying to figure out how we can smooth over the chasm that people fall into. When they buy your course, they realise that it's not going to get them to where they want to go. They show up on RWP confused and then I, along with a bunch of other helpful people, shout out to me RWP peeps, help them get to where they want to go. And to be clear, we will continue to do that. It irritates the... Uh, I don't know if I can swear on this or not. Probably not. It irritates the heck out of me. But we will continue to pick up the slack. I'm saying we as in the collective we, as in me and the, I don't know, 400 odd other people that are subscribed to RWP at the moment. And I'm saying pick up the slack as in we will continue to help move people towards a post-Reaper 3 production environment. For anyone that's not familiar with how this accessibility saga has played out over the years, the number three is important in that last thing that I said, because let's be real, Brian, Reaper 3 was the last version where reaccess functioned as expected. Not in Reaper 4, there were some fairly serious problems with it in Reaper 4. Not Reaper 5. Oh boy, was it broken in Reaper 5. And not where we are now, Reaper 6. I've never even tried it in Reaper 6. Has anybody? I wouldn't advise it. So when you talk about giving blind people the best that can be achieved, honestly, I've got no idea what you're talking about, dude. Because when a screen reader user buys a license for Reaper right now, the software that they receive in exchange for their money is natively accessible on a deeper level than it ever was back when Reaccess was the current accessibility extension. You introduce Asara into the equation, and now blind people have access to more of Reaper's feature set, i.e. better value for money, than they ever had back when Reaccess was the current accessibility extension. 
Last but by no means least, the relationship between blind and visually impaired people and Cocos themselves is stronger now than it ever was back when reaccess was the current accessibility solution. I happen to know about that one because I was kind of in charge of it both times, and this time I've been careful to do it better. On your end, Brian, if you want my opinion on what you need to be doing now, which I'm sure you don't, but I'm going to give it to you anyway, get yourself on the Asara GitHub page. Open an issue. Tell us about the features that you're waiting for, because like I said, we can't implement them if we don't know that you're waiting. Better yet, you're a developer yourself. Clone the GitHub repository. Have a poke at the source code. See if you can contribute. And if you can, make the changes that you're waiting for. Asara is open source by design. Cocos are an amazingly receptive company. So instead of sitting on the sidelines and waiting for stuff to happen, step up, get involved, bring your ideas to the table. That's what open source is for. (sighs) Okay, I think I'm done. Well, actually, all right, one more thing. I mentioned earlier that I'm being as frank as I feel like I can be on this platform. I guess that implies that there's more to say, doesn't it? And luckily, I have my own platform that I'll probably do that on. Now, I don't know if Jonathan's going to let me plug it or not, but if I don't try, I'll never know. So, here we go. It's a podcast. It's called The Audio Roundtable. If you like audio, you might like it. If you like accessibility, you might like it. If you like laughing, you might like it. Two of the co-hosts are pretty funny. I'm there as well. So is Matt McLaren. Never mind. You can fast forward through our bits. I will probably be talking about this and matters related to it in a more full more frank style on the next episode so if you're interested in that give it a jimmy wurlitzer all right cool i really am going now bye Mosin at large podcast i'm about to announce the winner of the libro fm competition wouldn't it be so cool if we had a little jingle that said, you know, another lucky winner or something. Another lucky winner. Yeah, exactly. That's genius. Oh, thanks to the production crew for that. Do, do that again. Do that again. Another lucky winner. Uh, tremendous. So we mentioned that if you put in your audio messages or your emails to the show over the last week, that you would like to be put into the draw for three months of membership with Libro.fm. That's $14.99 per month and you get a free audio book credit per month, then just let me know. And I've edited it out and everything and not read them out, but we had quite a pile of people who have written in this week saying that they would like to be eligible for this. And I have now picked a winner, Tracy Duffy. Thank you for your great contribution to Mosin at Large today. We'll be in touch with you to make sure that you are set up for your free three-month Libro FM membership. Thank you so much to Libro FM for making this possible and I hope you enjoy your reading, Tracy. Jonathan, it's Vaughan Rolls from Australia contacting you about some smart home issues. I'm looking at the whole smart home scenario. I'm going to install connected lighting, a doorbell and a door lock. I'm thinking that it should all, if possible, be Apple HomeKit compatible because Apple has such a good record on accessibility. I'm in the Google ecosystem because I have a Google Nest mesh Wi-Fi network throughout my house. So to me, it would make sense to then use the Google smart speakers to control the devices. I'm open to getting some Alexa speakers. I haven't heavily invested in Google, 
but and I know your views on Alexa versus Google, but that's why I'm thinking perhaps in this use case it might be worth staying with Google. But it comes down to the smart products. The other thing I'm curious to know if you know the answer, if you're not at home and you want to use a product that is Google or Alexa compatible, can you use the app on your smartphone to control that device? I'm looking at the LifeX globes for the lights. I'm looking for a doorbell solution and I'm looking for a lock solution. I know having listened to your um, podcast on home automation, you weren't overly pleased with the ring doorbell at one stage, wondering if the later version has improved things or if you'd suggest some other doorbell. And any thoughts on smart locks? There's a company in Australia, and I think they're in New Zealand as well, called Kogan, uh, and they sell um, smart doorbells, etc. and they say they're Alexa and Google compatible. That's why I was asking the question as to whether you can use the smartphone apps for Google Home or Alexa to control such devices, because if you can, that makes those somewhat of an attractive purchase because you're not relying on the manufacturer's app to control it on a day-to-day basis. It's great to hear from you, Vaughan. This smart home thing is a bit tricky when you're dabbling in various ecosystems, as most of us are. We really got into the Amazon Echoes first because they were first to come on sale here, whereas I think that Google products, the assistants, were the first to come on sale in Australia. And I think that has made a real difference to the way that both markets have evolved. To answer the key part of your question, absolutely, you can use certainly the Drinker app to control things from outside your house. For example, our heat pumps, and we have a large enough home that we have three heat pumps, all use the Mitsubishi Wi-Fi control technology, which is really good, and generally I found it very reliable. It has an okay iOS app, and I must have covered this when I did home automation some years ago. And it also has Google Home and Soup Drinker support. So when I'm outside the house, I do run the Amazon Echo, the Alexa app, and I say to it, turn on the heat upstairs. So, you know, we have a bunch of routines that do different things. And that absolutely does work. Philips Hue has fantastic cross-platform support as well. I'm not familiar with the brand of lights that you mentioned, so I can't comment either way. But with Philips Hue, you have a very accessible app that runs on iOS, but I do accept the point about vulnerability when it comes to third-party apps. So there's deep HomeKit integration And I know I have demonstrated this various times over the years where I can actually query with Siri and ask which lights are on and which lights are off and turn all the lights on and group them into different rooms. It really is very good. But the Google Home and Amazon Echo integration is also very good. So Philips Hue ticks all the boxes. And sadly, that is actually quite rare. For example, the Ring Video doorbell has been promising home integration, Apple HomeKit integration for a long time. And to the best of my knowledge, it still hasn't delivered that. So this is a real hassle to know which one to get. Smart plugs here, at least in this part of the world, have a similar problem. We could not find one smart plug brand at the time that we looked. And to be fair, it was probably three years ago when I really spent a lot of time on this that supported all the major home automation platforms. But as you say, 
since you can use these apps for Google Assistant and Amazon Echo outside the house, that's really not too big a deal. I find that of all of the platforms, HomeKit support is the most lacking. Generally, all these platforms seem to integrate quite well with Google Assistant and with the Amazon Echo platform. The Ring Video doorbell that you asked about, the one we have, the audio is pretty dodgy, and the app for iOS, to be honest, isn't that great at all. There are probably better options. I do note that there is a new Ring Video Doorbell 3, and they are promising integration with the Amazon Echo because, of course, Ring is now an Amazon product. They have had integration with the video side of the Amazon ecosystem for some time. But I understand with the new Video Doorbell 3, which I don't have and I haven't tried, you can get notifications about motion at your front door and when someone's ringing the doorbell. It's possible that the audio on those Video Doorbells is better. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine it being much worse, really. The audio is quite disappointing. And as somebody with a hearing impairment, that really exacerbates the issue. So I would be really interested if you would keep us updated, Vaughan, on your home automation journey. It is fun. I mean, it can be frustrating, but for the curious of mind, it can actually be quite an adventure to research the products and select them. And uh, what I find is very handy is if you can get a good relationship with a store of some kind and they understand your accessibility requirements and you have an agreement with them that if you really do come across something that has some accessibility challenges, you can return it. That is also very helpful. But as long as you can integrate with these home automation platforms and you can, as you say, deal with the apps that you know are accessible because they belong to the ecosystem rather than the third party, I think you're absolutely on the right track with that strategy. Hello, Mosin at Large listeners. This is Stan Luttrell in Medford, Oregon. I do have the new Orbit Rider and I've started just started using it. Although I've had it for a while, the reason I've just started using it is that uh, I had to replace my phone for a multitude of reasons. And I just got a new iPhone SE 2020, and I wanted to wait and pair the Orbit Rider to my new phone. And I love it. From what I've been able to use of it, I, I like the uh, concept of the Orbit Rider, and I think it looks like a really sleek unit, and it's a joy to be able to use. I need to upgrade the software to the a more recent build, but so far I like what I've been able to glean from using the Orbit Rider 20. Hey to Jonathan and all the Mosin at Large and Mushroom FM listeners. It's Michael. Wanted to answer a question that came on the podcast on September 5th and also tell you guys a little bit about an audio adventure. So I've used a couple of email marketing tools. Started with Aweber in 2012 and used them until they launched their visual campaigns feature in beta. I think that was 2016. And realized, eh, visual campaigns isn't going to work very well for me. And it did not play well with voiceover on the Mac. So then I switched over to a tool known by a lot of bloggers called ConvertKit. And I really liked ConvertKit because it had a very 
simplified interface, and it still does. I'll tell you my gotcha with ConvertKit here in a minute. And the pricing was a little higher than AWeber, but it worked great with screen readers, and I was able to send messages and build automated follow-up sequences and tag subscribers based on clicking links or opening emails and all that exciting stuff. And then in 2018, ConvertKit decided we're going to launch a visual campaigns feature. Sound a little familiar? And I reported some feedback to the team and said, hey, so a blind user using voiceover on the Mac cannot use this tool to add people to an automated sequence. Well, I got the runaround and they kept telling me that they were looking into it and that they would fix it. And I switched over to Windows and I told them it doesn't work on Windows either. And as of uh, when I tried it about five or six months ago, it still was inaccessible. This brought me back to my adventures with AWeber. Funny how things come full circle. And I started playing around with AWeber again. I... Honestly, I'm confident with the primary functions of building a automated follow-up sequence, building a campaign that is triggered when people have specific tags added to their profile, and being able to set up that automation. Now, I will tell you, you can easily build out your automated campaign. You do have to route JAWS to virtual PC and then left-click twice or something like that. I forget exactly what it is, but you can add items to that campaign, not an issue. Reorganizing is a little convoluted, so kind of map out in a notepad markdown document or Word or something how you want it to look so when you go build that campaign, you don't have to go back and rebuild it. Now, let's get back over to the audio, and I'll try to make this super quick, or at least a little quicker than what it's been. I had a Samsung Q2U microphone that traveled back and forth with me the 20 miles every day to work up until the pandemic and uh, furloughed me, and I... Loved that microphone. It was a great microphone and very sturdy. And I used it at our local company that owns eight different radio stations in our local market. And it was heard throughout the Southern Oregon coast. But I decided when I realized that the microphone was not getting recognized by Windows, that the USB port had kind of become damaged. And so it prompted me to explore upgrading my microphone options. Well, kind of sidestepping my microphone options. This is recorded to you on an Audio-Technica ATR2100X. That X is very important. The ATR2100 comes with a mini USB to USB cable and an XLR cable. The ATR2100X is the updated version that comes with USB-C to USB-C yeah, that means you can plug it into USB-C devices without any extra adapters. And it comes with a USB-C to USB-A cable. For those of us who don't have USB-C on our computers, I don't know why I'm saying us, because my computer has a USB-C port. It also includes an XLR cable that you can use to plug into that big boy audio interface you may be using. So, very good microphone. So far, I've been fairly happy with it. Same form factor as the Q2U, uh, except it has the little dial at the bottom to adjust the volume and not the buttons. And it is a very similar slide same form factor as just the ATR 2100. 
To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a U.S. number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin.